0: This is an O'Reilly Media podcast. I'm John Bruner, and my guest today is Elliot Knutsen. He's the data science lead for Tamer. Tamer is a company that uses AI to integrate data across silos. Elliot, good to have you on.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: So we're going to talk today about this matter of integration, bringing your data together across silos. A lot of companies have discovered that over several years of Developing their data and analytics infrastructure, they've wound up with data in a lot of different places. Pulling it back together is always a giant headache. So, before we get started, Elliot, uh, I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. So, I lead data science at Tamer. And what that means is that I will work with our customers, which are large enterprises, Global 2000 companies, to actually deploy and implement our artificial intelligence software for managing data as well as build advanced analytics on top of that data as well.
0: Now, we, we mentioned the use of AI to integrate data across silos. A lot of people might be familiar with the problem of integration, with the fact that their data has wound up on, in a lot of different silos from a lot of different sources. Um, where does AI come into this problem of integration?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. You know, the problem of data integration has existed for almost as long as artificial intelligence, right? Folks have been trying to integrate their data for 20 or 30 years. And what we found is when people are integrating their data, it tends to be a highly manual process that the same tasks are repeated over and over again. And what Tamer tries to do and what we've identified is that there are a couple of these really key tasks that are very, very challenging to scale across hundreds or thousands of sources of data. Things like mapping together attributes, understanding when different attributes across different data sets are the same or are different or require slight transformations, or alternatively looking at master data and metadata. And ensuring that that master data applies across these different data sets. So we've identified a couple of these core functions that just get repeated over and over again. And then we try to use AI to automate or to remove the friction um, from making those tasks. And the power of what we're able to do is combine basically the machine learning approach, combine the, the training and automation of these systems with an expert sourcing component, a workflow that we have uh, in our software. And, and we, call this, uh, we call this paradigm uh, machine-driven and human-guided. And we think it's really powerful. It's the ability to ask different subject matter experts, often within our, cust- uh, within our customers, uh, what the right answer is, and then use that to train the machine so that you can get more and more automation and remove more and more of the friction over time.
0: Interesting. So, um, a lot of people are worried right now that uh, AI is kind of overpromising its capabilities in terms of what's possible right now, what's practical right now. What can data scientists and, and data managers expect from this approach to integration?
1: So, the, the overpromising has certainly happened in, in many, many different areas of artificial intelligence. There's actually this professor Andrew Ng, who used to be the chief scientist, chief data scientist at Baidu. And he has this great quote, which is the, the two-second rule. So if it takes a human longer than two seconds to you know, cognitively perform a task, it's probably a very, very difficult task to automate. Mm-hmm. But if it's something that takes less than two seconds, it's likely something that we'll be able to automate either now or, or in the near future. So there are some tasks where the, um, the, the challenge of, of actually automating those things, is incredibly difficult, but there are others where it's it's very possible. So the example that I like to give here is this feature uh, in your in Gmail. So Gmail is is a fantastic example of an AI-enabled product. Right. So there. one, you, you one of the to, earliest ones. One of, one of the earliest examples, absolutely. Um and and it's really a great case study of what Google is now calling the AI first product. Um, you know, rather, um, rather than sort of the mobile first product, they, they think that there's a shift in, in framework here. But with, within Gmail, you have, uh, you have basically the, you you have the canonical example of machine learning, which is the spam filter. Everyone likes to use the spam filter as, as the example. So emails come in, you mark them, yes, no, as spam. It's a pretty simple mapping task you browse through who sent the email, through the contents of the email, and then the machine is able to, at scale, apply that learning over millions and millions of different emails and, and mark them in a binary way. Yes, this is spam. No, this is not spam. So Gmail, in addition to the spam filter, actually has a whole slew of other features that are enabled by artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the ones that, that I think is, is quite interesting is there is a flag around which emails are important versus which emails are not important. Right. Now, on the surface, the idea of flagging emails as being spam versus not spam and important versus not important looks very similar. But if you think about, you know, what it takes for someone to figure out whether or not an email is actually important and actually deserving of their their attention, that's usually something that, at least for me, it takes longer than two seconds. Right. I need to actually go through. I need to think about whether this is an email that I should be responding to at all. Right. And it's unlikely that artificial intelligence is in any near term going to be able to, in a, you know, in a in a very high precision way say that an email is important versus not important. Mm -hmm. So what what Gmail has done is that this is just a recommendation. They've built a recommender uh, system versus spam where Almost, you know, immediately you can tell whether or not email is spam or not spam. And in those cases, they have very, very high accuracy and they're able to filter out those emails so that you don't even need to worry about it anymore. I don't look at my spam folder for now months at a time. Right, right. Yeah. So so that it's a sort of an example of where, you know, the the idea of some of these promises of AI uh, at the surface seem rather simple. But then, when you get down into the weeds, it becomes a lot more complicated. And actually, automating uh, and automation in general, uh, I think, is is farther away for many, many different tasks than people think that it is today.
0: Let, let's begin with uh, with some examples. I wonder if you could talk about uh, actual cases that you've worked on where AI has been used to uh, to begin integrating data.
1: Sure. So, uh, so, so a great example of of integrating data is entity resolution. Mm -hmm. So the problem of entity resolution is looking across different data sets, identifying different entities. They can be legal entities like companies or people or products and beginning to construct a graph and beginning to map and link all of these different records together. Now, historically, entity resolution has been a really, really challenging problem. It's 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 usually something that's done in a rule-based way with a tremendous number of heuristics. But it turns out that deciding that two companies are the same or two people are the same can be done in a highly automated way in most cases. So So entity resolution is a great example of when we go and we talk to our customers and they are dealing with hundreds of systems, but an inability to sort of cross-reference those systems intelligently. Uh, That's an area where there's really a lot of power in, you know, bringing automation to that task. Maybe the, you know, the the counter example to that is the example I gave at the beginning around attribute mapping, right? So Mm -hmm. the ability to identify that two attributes actually refer to one another. Uh, And that at the surface, you know, um, seems relatively simple. But that problem is actually a much, much more complex problem. And and lends itself much better to a recommendation system versus an automation system.
0: So, what kinds of companies are you seeing uh, make use of this type of entity resolution and and you know more broadly AI in uh, integration?
1: Sure. So, so one of our earliest customers was Thomson Reuters. Uh, Thomson Reuters is actually a data provider, right? They they sell data uh, to a number of institutions in the finance space for regulatory and legal and tax and accounting, and they actually have very, very high levels of accuracy and precision around their data that they've agreed to with, uh, with their customers, right? Um, their proposition is that their data is more trusted than any other data in the marketplace. Right. And when, when they started using Tamer, it was to basically cross-reference all the different what they called content or data sets across their businesses, so that whether one of their customers is looking at one, you know, content that they have around deals, for instance, deals that that happen, uh, M&A, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that that thing can can accurately cross-reference all the different legal actions that are coming out of their legal uh, their legal content. And where where Tamer was used was basically to to help them connect those disparate data sets in highly accurate ways. Another great example that we have is in the ERP rationalization case. So we've done a lot of work with with GE uh, that we've talked about quite a bit around how to understand their suppliers and products uh, and their supply chain and what they're purchasing and basically using machine learning to connect all of that highly structured but incredibly siloed application data uh, that they use for procurement.
0: So this is um, sort of data that is essentially well-organized, but that's just stored under different schemas and, um, and different sorts of like key schemes.
1: Well, it's well-organized for the person that's sitting in the silo. Uh, and <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's, the, that's the core of it, which is that you have these pockets of very well-understood data, and it's called structured data, and, and everyone thinks of it that way. But then when you go to the enterprise level and you're dealing with, you know, hundreds of these databases that contain thousands of tables with millions of attributes, it starts to look a lot less organized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's always a fun exercise, which, uh, which I like to go through with customers uh, around what their critical data elements are and, um, and, and mapping out, well, you know, what is a reasonable number of critical data elements to actually have in an organization? And then how does that map to all of, um, all of the applications and all of the databases that you have today? And remarkably, you know, the, the process of, of working through that is incredibly complex. And very rarely is there enough information in the room in order to make those decisions. It's all about the tribal knowledge um, that folks have of, and context that folks have about this data. Uh, that is sits in the heads of people all across these organizations.
0: So there is an element of human expertise here, of, of the operators within each silo, kind of beginning to train the the uh, AI model.
1: Absolutely. And you know, some it's interesting. Some organizations think of this problem, the the tribalism, as a um, as a burden. They think of it as not just legacy. Uh, data and legacy applications, but also legacy people. Uh, but there are others that that really think about this as being a source of competitive advantage, which is that you know all of this historical data is incredibly powerful because it's data about customers and it's data that has that's yet to be tapped. Mm-hmm. So um, so you know the it's 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 always uh, it's always fun for me to actually sit down with these people that understand the data much, much better than anyone uh, else in the world because because those folks often um, uh, just have the, the most value in being able to help integrate uh, that into uh, into the workflow. Now, what, what Tamer does, the product, is that we actually think about a crowdsourcing mechanism or a way to pull these people into the data integration process. Hmm. So easy questions around whether it be attribute definition, right, or, uh, or entity resolution, right? Are these two companies the same? Are these two people the same? Are these two attributes the same? That, you know, you can ask those different experts that are closest to the data and get them involved in the curation process without having to pull them into a meeting or put them into a war room or all these other mechanisms that companies do to get their experts into one place.
0: Right. And, the, and these experts you mentioned, are they generally technical uh, experts? They're database administrators or are they just kind of like line of business experts?
1: It's always a mix. It's always a mix. You have folks that are uh, highly technical and understand the ETL processes, the pipelines, the logic um, that goes into um, into the different data movement. But then you also have the line of business and that understands the priorities of data, the priorities of data elements, mm-hmm. um, and can really be a simplifier uh, in, in the whole process of collecting uh, data and then using them for analytics.
0: So uh, I wonder if uh, you could uh, edify the data and machine learning nerds who listen to this podcast and describe a little bit of the machine learning that's going on inside the Tamer product. What kinds sure. of models are you using?
1: Yeah, so, so I'm a machine learning geek at heart. So, um, so I always love to, to dive into it. So fundamentally, what, what Tamer is all about uh, and the way that we think about this problem is how do we build an active learning system? So a system that can continuously take in feedback and then provide back data and in the interim be building training data sets that are incrementally improving the models over time. The best example that I have for this is Google Maps. Mm-hmm. So Google Maps is on an ongoing basis enriching their data sets, providing you know uh, different services around uh, mapping the streets, ensuring that they're accurate, overlaying a set of businesses on top of those things and a set of different sites on top of those things, as well as real-time traffic feeds, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the approach that they use is that uh, they have a probabilistic way of thinking around how do you integrate data together. And in order to to do that really effectively, you need to take this active learning approach of doing intelligent sampling and asking the right questions to, you know, to folks over time and building training sets uh, over time. And Hmm. it's actually less important what the underlying algorithms are. And it's more important Around what is your workflow for collecting training data, sampling data, and then asking it to to different folks, whether it's in your organization or across across the organization. And it all falls into the the guise of of active learning, which is Hmm. basically how do you go from an unsupervised system, a system where you have no training data and no prior knowledge around what you're training on, to a fully supervised system where you have high levels of accuracy, and you have really good understanding of your precision and recall. Um, and, and how do you ask questions in a way that is efficient, and in a, in a way where you really get a lot of uh, sort of bangs for your buck hmm. in terms of improving the accuracy of those models.
0: So trying to get the best leverage out of the time that you're asking humans to put into training the uh, model.
1: That's right. And there's a lot of buzz right now around, you know, these um, uh, these different algorithms that require tremendous amounts of training data. Right. You have these, you know, deep learning algorithms, different sorts of neural nets, even things like, you know, elastic net algorithms and different, more boring, you know, uh, regressions that when you have huge amount of training data can become highly accurate and and can in many cases actually supersede what any you know what any one human can do but in in most cases right the work that you're doing is all around how do you collect that training data effectively and in our specific application which is how do you integrate data together collecting that the collection of that training data mm-hmm. is actually really really challenging but also incredibly powerful because you can get to those high levels of automation with um with what we call that you know uh Machine-driven, human-guided approach.
0: So, as a machine learning geek uh, yourself, I wonder if you could, uh, before we let you go, give us a little bit of a sense of what your vision is for machine learning uh, in the next ten years or so. Where where do you see it headed?
1: Yeah, I think that machine learning is going to become very application-specific and and in very verticalized. You know, the um, the the use cases and the effectiveness of machine learning is so dependent on the data that you put into those algorithms. And the really powerful companies, the companies that are going to different, the companies that have differentiated themselves and will continue to differentiate themselves are the companies that are able to, in a very, very systematic and programmatic way, collect training data and improve the accuracy of their algorithms over time. Uh, and, and ultimately, it's going to be that data, right, um, that's going that that is very frequently tied to a vertical um, that is going to be the competitive moat uh, for these companies. So there are a, a whole set of these companies. The most recent of these companies is a company called Merlon Intelligence, which is hmm. trying to take artificial intelligence and improve anti-money laundering, improve different financial regulatory um, uh, use cases, but collecting training data around very specific applications uh, and improving um, those applications i think is um, is going to be incredibly powerful
0: that is going to be a really interesting future uh to to watch as it emerges so uh elliot if listeners want to find you online where should they look
1: yeah so they can always email me elliot at tamer.com uh, i'm also you know uh, very frequently at o'reilly conferences i'd uh, love, to, love to meet folks there. Um, and then I'm also on LinkedIn and on Twitter.
0: Terrific. My guest today is Elliot Knutsen. He's the data science lead at Tamer. My name's John Bruner, and this is an O'Reilly Media podcast.